Now, this time of year, I cannot help but recall the disaster that overtook my first ever family holiday. It was a disaster. I was about six years old. Yeah, about six years old at the time. Here was the plan. The plan, my parents' plan, uh, was to drive all the way from the north of Scotland, all the way from uh, Inverness, and to drive all the way to France in a, wait for it, a one-litre Ford Fiesta. In fact, it may even have been a 950cc uh, Fiesta all the way from Inverness to France. That was uh, the plan. Does that sound slightly ambitious uh, to, to some of you? Well, you would be right, because as a lot of you know, the first obstacle that you meet when you leave Inverness heading south, first obstacle is a really significant hill. It's a rather steep incline called a Dramossi Bray. So guess what happened? This one litre Ford Fiesta was so packed with holiday gear and it was so dramatically underpowered that it would not get up that very first obstacle. It could not get up the hill. Now you try and imagine how frustrating that was, especially for my parents. No matter how many times my dad tried, no matter how long a run-up he took at this hill, no matter how much welly he gave this little Ford Fiesta, it just was not happening at all. And so what he had to do was turn around, go home, and borrow humbly uh, somebody else's car. So you can imagine, it's not starting well. Bit of a disaster area. Now why would I begin a sermon telling you such a tale of woe? Well, is that not really almost a perfect metaphor of your spiritual experience as a Christian just now? You know, when you think about that car... Does it not sound like, does it not feel like your spiritual life even today? If we're honest with ourselves as Christians today, doesn't it feel like we, like the car, we are failures? Doesn't it feel like that? We have this, on a daily basis, this hill of holiness, don't we, that God is calling us to, to climb. We have this battle against sin that you and I are called to. What's happening on a daily basis? What's weighing us down? The fact that every single time we try, we seem to fail. We feel like failures. Well, in this portion of Scripture that we're looking at this morning, quite a short portion of Scripture, do you know what? Yeah! Yes, we're actually going to see, that's pretty much accurate, that actually we are, as Christians, failures. And we're going to see a number of ways in which that manifests itself. But thankfully, that is not all we're going to see today. We're also going to see, we're also going to be reminded of the good news. And what's that for us as Christians? Our salvation is not dependent upon your present spiritual successes. Your salvation is dependent upon Christ and he alone. So, let's look at the text. The first thing that we need to, to note here is the Christian's readiness to desert Jesus. The Christian's readiness to desert our Lord. How do we see that? What does that even mean? i tell you this. More than normal this morning. I uh, wish I had more time. <laughs> I, I really do. I wish I had a little bit more time this morning. Because wouldn't you agree there is a sermon 
just crying out to be preached on the very first phrase you've got in front of you. Have a look at the first phrase in verse 26. Do you see what it is? So you remember they had the Passover feast. Jesus instigated the Lord's Supper. You remember that from last week? Look at the phrase. It's How did they end it? What happens here? When they had sung a hymn. Do we, just, do we love it? Like, isn't it just the most beautiful idea? The Lord of glory, Jesus Christ, has come from heaven. He has come to earth. What's he done? He's gathered sinful men together. And what have they done? They've returned praise to his holy... Do you see it? What do they do? They, they sing a... They sing a hymn. I love it. It's a beautiful, beautiful image. But wouldn't you agree? It's more than that. Because what we've got there, an example for you and I to follow... So I'm saying this to you as a congregation. What should we do when we gather in each other's houses and house groups and so forth? What do we do? What should we do? We should sing praise to God. And parents, what should we do when we gather our children together on a daily basis for family worship? We gather them round the table after the meal. What do we do? We pray. We read. What do we? What should we do? We should sing. Sing praise to God. And what should we do today in a moment or two when this service ends? What should the covenant community do? We should do this. We should raise our voices in song, raise them loudly, looking to God, singing praise to the Lord Most High. Don't you agree? There's a sermon in that phrase. I'll tell you this, it's not for just now. Okay, it's not because we've got a mission. We have to do something. We have to catch up with Jesus. wonder if you see what I mean. They've left the upper room. They've actually left the walls of Jerusalem. Jesus and all of the disciples. They crossed what is the Kidron Valley. You've heard of the Kidron Valley? And now we see that they have ascended the Mount of Olives. So have a guess. If you've been here for this sermon series, have a guess what Jesus does now. When they go at the Mount of Olives, have a guess. I keep saying this, I think, every week at this point in Mark's Gospel. What does Jesus do? He drops a bombshell on the disciples. This time around, have a look. Look at verse 27. What is the shocking statement? It's not about betrayal. Look at it. Verse 27. Jesus predicts. He says, look at the comprehensiveness of it. You will... All fall away. Now that's a bombshell. Imagine hearing that in the Mount of Olives. You will, all of you, he says to the disciples, you will fall away. Now, let's work at this. I think what is important to understand is what Jesus is not saying. Now you would agree with me, I hope, that he is not saying that those disciples will cease to be believers. That's not what it means, is it? You will fall away. He's not saying to them, you are going to permanently leave me. He's not saying that, is he? He's not even saying the idea of, you're going to, you guys, you're going to do a Judas. It's, it's, it's not, this is a lapse. This falling away. Now, don't get me wrong. It's still very, very serious, isn't it? It's an awful thing that he's saying here. But you've got to understand that this is a temporary falling away. And if you know your Bibles, you know when this happens, don't you? What happens? The disciples soon and in Jesus as the cross approaches. So you understand what I'm saying to you? It's a temporary thing. But I'm still saying to you as a congregation, wouldn't you like to, isn't it shocking? 
I mean, isn't this what you have in front of you? Is it not the most awful thought? I mean, think about what we've noticed. Like these disciples have seen this man heal the lame, give sight to the blind, and remember he's stilled a storm with just a word. And he's walked on water. What else has he done? They have seen him. They've witnessed him actually raise people to, to life again. And here, what do we see? Despite all of that power and the glory and the love that he has shown them, what is it they do? They abandon him. They leave him. They flee. And I wonder, friends, this morning, if you hear and see the lesson that there is for London City Presbyterian Church here, we are being confronted today, I think, with the truth of the Christian's readiness to depart and desert the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that not what we have here? And I want to say to you, and I want to ask you, is that not true of your heart as you examine it this morning? Is it not true that such is the sin of your heart, that you and I always but a moment away from disloyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ? Isn't that true? Our sin, our heart, always just this moment away from disloyalty to him. Just ready, you and I, even as Christians, to flee a conversation about the Lord Jesus Christ, aren't we? Always ready just to, to, to run away, to abandon the idea of obedience to Christ. So you and I, we might look at Mark chapter 14 and say, this is disgusting. Like, how can they do this? This is shocking. This is you. This is me. This is us. And perhaps that's hard for us to hear. I do think, though, this section provides help for us because it shows us the usual conditions that lead to disloyalty. Now, I'll show you what I mean by that. If you would do this with me, would you look again at verse 27? And would you look at the verb that Jesus uses here? Now, what's the, he says, what are the disciples going to do? The disciples are going to fall away. Now, I want you to understand this, that in the original language, it is passive, this idea of falling away. So do you understand what that means? It's not the idea that the disciples just suddenly, off their own accord, abandon Jesus without due reason. It's this idea that they are here caused to fall away. Do you understand that there is an external pressure that is placed upon these disciples that leads to their abandoning of Jesus? And again, if we know scripture, we know what that external pressure was, don't we? What was it? What's going to happen in the next few hours? The whole of the city is going to turn against Jesus and his followers. Like the whole of Jerusalem society is going to be outraged at those who declare the name of Jesus. And it's that pressure there, isn't it? That plays on these disciples. It's that pressure that leads to their falling away. I wonder if you hear the warning from God to you. I mean, consider when you live. Consider the hostility of London towards biblical Christianity today. Do you hear what God's saying? Do you? He's surely saying the conditions in 21st century Britain, they are right for 
disloyalty to Christ Jesus. Isn't that it? What must we do? You and I, we must stand firm. We must be ready. We must be prepared to take a stand. And to take a stand in London in the 21st century. And take a stand for Christ. So we see a readiness to desert Jesus. Second thing that we see here is the Christian's weakness. We've seen the Christian's readiness. Now for the Christian's weakness for spiritual pride. The Christian's weakness for spiritual pride. Now I know that a few of the children are away on holiday today. But I'm sure you would permit me to speak to the remaining children brought just now, friends. So, boys and girls, this is how we're going to play it. Okay, I'm going to need help from all of the young ones. I'm going to ask you two questions in this sermon. I'm going to ask you the first question just now. So, you ready? I know some of you are doing the worksheets. This is an easy question. This is such an easy question, boys and girls, that you're going to think that it's a trick question. Okay? But it's not. Okay, here's the question. Who wrote Mark's Gospel? Who wrote Mark's Gospel? Now, I didn't think that this would stump the boys and girls. Juliet's got it. You're going for it. Yeah, I was going to ask you who wrote Mark's Gospel, but I didn't need to. You got it. So, Mark wrote Mark's gospel. But friends, what we've noticed earlier on in the sermon series is despite the fact that that is correct, it is also true, isn't it, that the apostle Peter seems to have played a role in the writing of this book. Do you remember we said that? We said it's almost as though the apostle Peter was standing at Mark's shoulder as Mark writes. Now one of the reasons that we see that is because when you're reading through Mark's gospel, and let's say you get to a, a place where Peter plays a prominent role, what seems to happen is that there's an extra vividness to the account when Peter's mentioned. There seems to be a, a greater depth, almost as though you can imagine it. Peter's there with Mark, and he's kind of recounting sort of personal details. So you with me? So Peter seems to play this important role. Now that is perhaps most obvious when it gets to Peter's denials of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you, friend, you can see that we begin that here. Now, here's my question for you as a congregation. How would you describe Peter's reaction to Jesus here? Did you notice it? Did you? Like Jesus declares that all of the disciples are going to abandon him. How would you say Peter reacts to that? Would you agree that he is, he seems to be kind of angry about this statement and this prediction. Don't you think so? Like Peter's, Peter's, perhaps he's offended as well. And, and I'm sure you would agree. He seems to think that he is above this idea of him. Is Peter, deserting Jesus? Now I think you've got an example there of what we might call spiritual pride. And I want to bring this to your door this morning, friends. I want to make this comment that it would seem to be that spiritual pride is an illness that is really prevalent among Christians today. And I want to take that one step further. And I've said this before and we'll say it again. But see what we're dealing with here, this idea of arrogance, spiritual pride. 
It is a disease that seems to be most rife amongst the reformed community. What does that mean? It means it's prevalent amongst you and me here. Now, because of the relevance of this to ourselves, I want us to just notice one or two things from Scripture. First of all, I want us to notice how spiritual pride is identified. So again, look with me in your Bibles. Look with me to 29, verse 29. Let's look at this indicator for arrogance here. And I notice what Peter says. Like Jesus has said, you're all going to fall away. Look at the response. He says, oh, even though they all fall away, I'm not going to do it. Now, do you see what that is? Do you see how Peter is thinking? Is it not true that he is thinking that he is more spiritual than the rest of them? They're going to do it. I'm not going to do it. It's like he's saying to Jesus, okay, you're probably right about Andrew. Or see, that guy James. And John, yeah, to be honest, they're probably going to desert you when the heat's up, you know, when things happen. But come on, Jesus and Peter, I, I love you so much. I'm, I'm so devoted to you. I, I'm not going to desert. I am more spiritual than these other people, right? Now, let me ask you this. Friends, when you examine your heart, does that sound familiar to you? I mean, is that a way that you are sometimes prone to think? Like thinking, for instance... That our denomination, the Free Church of Scotland, that it is more spiritual than other denominations. Thinking perhaps that our brand of Christianity, the Reformed faith, we think that this is more spiritual than other, wait, or even worse. Thinking this, thinking, I, I am more spiritual than my brothers and sisters at London City Presbyterian Church. Friend, do you think like that? Can I tell you what that is? That there is a pre-cancerous cell. Isn't it? Isn't it a telltale sign? Isn't it an indicator of show pride this morning? See the indicator and take note. Then we see though, that spiritual pride, what we're talking about here, what is prevalent amongst us, it is also often contagious. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, if I were to invite any uh, to, to be up the front here, any, our resident exotic disease expert, if, uh, if I had been inclined to invite her up the front, which I'm not going to do for various reasons, um, I think she would agree with what I'm going to say. Isn't it true? You remember the Ebola outbreak of a couple of years ago? The scariest thing about that outbreak was not the effects of the disease. Like the effects of Ebola are awful, but so are the effects of a lot of diseases. Isn't that right? What was the scariest element of the Ebola outbreak? It was just how contagious the disease was. Isn't it how quickly it spread? How certain people who were in contact with victims were to contract the disease? That's what... That's what was frightening. That's what was scary, wasn't it? That's what caused alarm. Now, I want you to see that in Mark 14. Because I tell you what, I'd love to know more than anything here. I'd love to know how the disciples would have responded to Jesus had Peter not jumped in. Because you remember it last week if you were here. Do you remember last week? Jesus drops a bombshell. He says, one of you is going to betray me. How did the disciples respond? They were given to self-inquiry. 
When they remember, they searched their hearts. Is it me? Am I the one that's going to betray Jesus? I'd love to know if that's what would have happened here, but we'll never ever know because Peter jumps in and I want you to see what that means. Because think about the disciples here. How do they start? They start quiet. They don't say a word. But then when Peter begins with his arrogance and his pride, what happens? Those disciples in the text, they seem to follow his lead. You know, he shows pride. He says, I'm better than them. I'm more spiritual. And that seems to spread to the disciples, doesn't it? And it gets to the point. Look at verse 31. Look at how it ends. Peter makes this brash, rude, arrogant statement. I will not deny Christ. And look at the last phrase. We're told then that all the disciples said the same thing. Do you see what's happened here? Peter's arrogance, his spiritual pride has spread to the rest of these men. I think there's a lesson for the elders of the church in that. I think there's a lesson for the parents of the church in that. I think there's a lesson for all of us in that. Friends, what does scripture tell us? It tells us that sin, unless it is dealt with, it spreads. Your sin is contagious. Do you understand? That if there is spiritual pride in our hearts, if there is this arrogance, if you are speaking ill of your fellow believers, what can you be sure about? If that is not dealt with, that will spread through London City Presbyterian Church. It will be contracted by your children. You see, do you? Spiritual pride, it is contagious. Then we see, we see how it's identified, we see that it's contagious, but we also see that it is, spiritual pride, a deadly disease. And here we come to the most familiar words of the law. I'm pretty sure everyone in this room, if you're young or old, you're familiar with how Jesus responds to Peter's arrogance. In fact, here we go. Second question for the boys and girls. Okay, now... I gave you a really easy question earlier on. That was too easy. So I'm going to ask you a more difficult question this time around. So we know that Mark wrote Mark's gospel under the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, here's your question. Ready? All the boys paying attention? All the girls? Good. In this section of scripture, Jesus predicts that Peter is going to deny him. I want to know, before that rooster crows, how many times does Jesus say Peter will deny him? Sorry? Ah, Juliet is on a roll this morning. We've got it. And Alan got it as well. Fantastic. So, three times, three times, do you see what we've got? Do you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying that such is Peter's arrogance and pride. Friends, he is going to fall further than the rest of the disciples. He's saying that his sin, such is his pride and arrogance, Peter's sin is more severe. They will temporarily lapse. Peter, though, what's Peter going to do? It's repeated. He falls, he falls, he falls. 
falls, he falls to the point of apostasy. And I think that is worth you and I considering this morning. The very fact that God would allow Peter to fall flat on his spiritual face in order to show him his sin, to show him his spiritual pride. Does that not make us wake up? Do we not now see the dangers involved in spiritual pride? When we see that the Reformed community is perhaps especially susceptible to this disease, that this is relevant, I think we go today with these words in our ears. Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And then we close with a third thing this morning. We've seen the Christian's readiness, the Christian's weakness, and then lastly, the Christian's indebtedness to Christ Jesus. Indebtedness to Christ. If you're part of London City Presbyterian Church and you've been regular with us, I hope you've seen a number of the themes of Mark's Gospel as we come towards the end of this book. I hope you would agree that we've seen the failings and the errors of the disciples. They've made a mess of things, haven't they? (laughs) I mean, they've misunderstood Jesus, and they've doubted Jesus, and they've rebuked Jesus. And I hope, friends, you see that today what they do is the worst of the lot. I mean, refocus on it for a moment. What have we got? At the point of our Savior's greatest need... At the point where he is afflicted from all sides. As they turn the corner of the Passion account and what comes into view? The cross. At that very point, what did these men do? And he's loved them, remember? And he's served them and he's called them. And what do they do? They, 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 they leave him. And they leave him alone. They abandon the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't it, isn't it, it is, isn't it awful? It is awful. And so surely when we read this text, there's a question we're asking. Because how can Jesus possibly promise what he promises here in verse 28? They think what they've done. Look at the promise. He says once his earthly ministry is done, what is he going to do? He is going to go before them to Galilee. Aren't you with me? I mean, how can he make that promise? Like what, what is he saying? He is saying that he is going to meet up with them again. That though they are about to abandon him, he will not abandon them. That though they will sin atrociously against the holy God. What's Jesus saying? He's saying that somehow he's going to forgive them. Somehow these scattered sheep, he's going to gather them up. He's going to restore them to intimate, personal fellowship with himself. He says, I'm going to see you again. How does he make that promise? Well, friends, I want you to understand this portion of scripture. It's not a list of your guilt. It's not just a list of your sin. I want you to see again, you are being reminded in this section of scripture of the gospel of God. And I want you to hear it. If you're a child, listen. If you're visiting, listen. Everyone, listen. How can Christ forgive these failures? Well, first we know he would go on to die. And you you look at me and you say, we know this. We know Christ will die. But I, I say back to you, is there not something about that here? 
Because who's the chief villain in this portion of scripture? It's Peter, isn't it? And he's, he's been so hard and he's not seen. Jesus has said so many times, I'm going to suffer. I am going to die. And, and you know Peter's been so blind to that truth. And there's such misery here. But isn't there grace? Look at verse 31. What happens here, verse 31? Jesus says, even amidst his, his wicked sin, he says, I must die with you. Do you see what's happening? Finally, the penny drops for Peter there. He realizes, wait a second here, Jesus is going to suffer. He re- if I have to die with you, he realizes that Jesus is about to die. But then don't we also see the purpose behind the death? Because what happened earlier on? We got Peter to, to come up the front, Peter Fraser. He came up and he opened scripture. He opened the living word and he read from... Zechariah 13, didn't he? These words that Jesus quotes here. What did you learn there? What did you hear Almighty God say? He said, I, God said, I will strike the shepherd. My question is, who's the shepherd? Do you see what's happening in Mark 14? Jesus is revealing to these men for the first true time. He's revealing... That in this death, he is going to face the full force of divine displeasure. He's revealing here to them, even amidst their sin, that he is soon to be punished by the Father to face his wrath. Do you see? How does he forgive them? How does he restore them? He is going to bear their sin. And then the last element of gospel good news... How does he preface his promise? He says, I'm going to go before you into Galilee. After what? After he has been raised up. And if you're a believer this morning, you see what's in view there, don't you? The glorious truth that the Lord Jesus Christ would not lie silent in the grave. Peter was right, wasn't he? Jesus would die. But he would not be defeated by death. That God the Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit, would raise the Son to everlasting and eternal life. And that is how Jesus can promise to forgive and restore fallen, feeling believers. So I end with this. If you're a Christian this morning, where is your heart today? Are you weighed down by the guilt of your sin? These habits sin, the severity of the sin, the routine of the sin. Is that all you are seeing? Are you even asking, how is it possible that God could save me? A wretched, horrible sinner. Is there nothing but guilt? Raise your eyes. See the good news of of God. Understand that your salvation is not dependent upon your present spiritual success. Your salvation is not dependent on your the constancy of your love for Jesus Christ. Your salvation not dependent on the fervor of your witness. Listen to this one. Your salvation not dependent upon the steadiness of your faith.
Your salvation is dependent on who Christ is and what Christ has done for you. And what is that if you're a believer? He's removed your sin. He's taken your sin. He's borne your sin. He's been punished for your sin. Your sin before God is gone. So I'll tell you this, how it is that we should sing. Shouldn't we? Don't we have content for our praise to God today? You are a failure. We are all spiritual failures. But the good news of the gospel of God is that Christ Jesus is not. Let's pray.